Hello, and welcome back to Reformed, a podcast on the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform. This is part two of our third episode, where we've been discussing the prison industrial complex and the economics of prisons. Now, we're looking at how private companies developed economic interests in imprisonment. Correctional facilities and the government also use prison labor to extract value from incarcerated people. Prison jobs fall into two categories. Public labor, where a person works for the prison, or private labor, where a person works for a private business. For a first-hand account of someone affected by this system, I asked Saquon Merritt to tell me a little bit about his work experience and the typical work experiences of people incarcerated. The first, first, first job was um, sanitation, mm-hmm. which is the first thing available, um, which is just sweeping up the tier. You know, after, after recreation, like I told you, when, you know, when guys lock in, you come out and you sweep the tier. After the count is clear, you know, you sweep the tier, you know, the trash off the tier or whatever is there. Um, that's basically like um, it's a, a job mm-hmm. that gives you um, five what they call demunition credits, five days off of each month you do. So if you work for 30 days, let's just say just for instance, your release date was um, 4-11. This is 4-11-2018. Let's just say you had a year and your release date was 4-11-2019. As I do 30 days, so if I work from April the 11th today to May the 11th next month, mm-hmm. then my release date would be my release date would be um, for the ninth, I believe. Yeah, it would be, it would, no, it wouldn't be the ninth, excuse me. Six? My math is off. Yeah, it would be the sixth. <laughs> it would be uh, April the sixth, 2019. Mm-hmm. Oh, only after I completed those 30 days. So that's how those mm-hmm. diminutions, so you get the days off the back of your sentence. And did you get paid as well as getting diminution or no? Um, yeah, you got paid. Okay. You got paid. You got paid a, maybe 85 cents a day. Okay. Sanitation, they give you 85 cents a day. So, you know, um, you know, and you only get paid, you get paid after 30 days. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like the, the first of the month, they call that state week. Mm-hmm. So that's when the, uh, you get paid for your state job. Mm-hmm. So I have maybe, maybe $21 mm-hmm. in my account that um next month right uh to try to you know to spend on commissary which is minimum because (laughs) we still as the prices increase uh on the outside you know with you know with soap and uh toothpaste and things like that they the same thing happens on the inside and then you know we actually get charged more you know a a bag of tie pods you know 16 tie pods for us is ten dollars (laughs) <laughs> I think it's five or six dollars on the outside. So, you know, you try to get, you know, you get the cheaper soap mm-hmm. and then these cheaper soap, they call it high efficiency, but you know, that really doesn't really do anything to your clothes. Yeah. So, you know, you, that's, you, if you try to, you know, four or five dollars and you want to get toothpaste, that's another five dollars or mm-hmm. three dollars. So, you know, those things add up to that twenty one dollars. And you got to think in a sense, your family doesn't always have 
money to send you. Remember, I told you the hundred and sixty dollars yeah. a month you may spend on the phone. Yeah. So um, you know they don't they don't always have that. So sometimes you're just working with uh, state money. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you gotta you know borrow and things like that to try to make it through to the next state week. So you know you, you gauge pretty much maybe four soaps mm-hmm. a month, a soap a bar, a soap a week. Mm-hmm. So that's another four or five dollars. Um, you know, so it sometimes the the state pay or the pay that they give you doesn't really make due. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's 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 just you know it's kind of it's kind of ridiculous because you know they don't raise our pay in in accordance with commissary. You know, and they don't they don't issue you they don't supply you with soap and things of that nature. You have to buy that stuff. They have additional jobs from sanitation. That's pretty much the bottom level where pretty much everybody starts. Your name goes in the sanitation pool. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you try to work your way around to some of the better jobs in the jail, which is pretty much the, uh, what they call shops. Okay. Um, Maryland uh, Correctional Enterprises. Mm-hmm. They actually made a um, corporation mm-hmm. out of their uh, that, that business. And that encompasses, um, they have print shops, um, they have wood shops. Um, they have tag shops. Mm-hmm. Um, up sewing shops. What's a tag shop? Tag shop is Maryland Tags. Okay. We make the majority of, and I mean, yeah. Well, people incarcerated make Maryland Tags. Make a okay. nice amount of Maryland Tags. So the tags you get from MVA are made in Jessup. Right. Um, so um, these these are the different shops and. Obviously, they they outsource. You know, the government they you know, pay the shops a certain amount of money to mm-hmm. uh, do that, and you know the state saves on that because they can pay us a lower wage mm-hmm. than um, paying a regular for profit company for these services. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that's what we do. Like the wood shop, we we make um, we make a lot of the furniture for the University of Maryland. We make a lot of furniture for the uh, Annapolis State Building. Um, a lot of delegates and um, senators um, so they, they contract to MCE uh, to make these things sewing all of the clothes that uh, that uh, people incarcerated wear mm-hmm. um, all of the uh, correctional officer uniforms they're all you know a lot of them made in the sewing shop they have a huge book the book mm-hmm. is pretty much like <laughs> I think a 2,000 to 3,000 page book of all of the products okay. that Maryland Correctional Enterprises uh, makes for the state, and in turn, the state is able to save, uh, I believe, a nice amount of money mm-hmm. uh, on being able to outsource them to the uh, shops in prison, opposed to a regular, you know, for-profit company. It's it's crafted, man. It's it's a lot of. Um, I have a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of residents, you know, a lot of my my residents that I was in, incarcerated with. That was uh, that are not was they are talented. You know they're talented. These are these are people that's behind there that's able to uh, you know make a prototype mm-hmm. of um, an idea or a concept somebody may have for a a, a wraparound um, desk or you know a, a table with you know different chairs and things of that nature. They can draw that up, measure it out, get on the machine, and you know make that happen. Um, printing. Mm-hmm. You know, we do a lot of the, the Department of Housing and Community Development, um, a lot of the Maryland State Lottery. Mm-hmm. We actually print when, you know, Monopoly has a new game and things of that nature, and they hang them up in front of the 7-Elevens. We actually print those 
with Apple, Apple mm-hmm. software, um, top of the line um, print machines. Um, we actually take, you know, take the, um, we take the file if it needs to be altered a little bit to fit, you know, the parameters mm-hmm. on the uh, print machine in order to get ready to print the sheets out. We, we take care of that. You know, we make sure the color quality matches, is consistent mm-hmm. through every copy. Um, you know, we, yeah, we, we, do a, we do a lot of, lot of work. You know, we do a lot of work. It's a lot of talent, talent behind, you know, those, uh, those prison um, doors, you know, there. So, you know, in, in, in that aspect, um, there's opportunity to, uh, you know, learn, learn, learn a lot. Saquon also told me a little bit about the typical amounts that someone would earn while working during incarceration. Now, the wood shop, you make a, maybe a little bit more. Yeah. You may, maybe you make, a, I think, a dollar more. Okay. So you make a dollar eighty-five, maybe three dollars or mm-hmm. something like that a day. It, it can range. Like they give yeah. you um, uh, in, incentives depending on how long you were there. I think the top pay is probably about six or seven dollars a day. Okay. In those shops, and if you you know you work overtime and things of that nature, but um, we don't. It's it's still in no comparison to. Um, the going rate, you know, the average rate of uh, people in those occupations. Yeah. Um, it's nowhere near minimum wage, um, you know, and, and I believe, you know, just the money they're saving, they can afford to, you know, uh, you know pay us more. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this money can be utilized for, you know, a lot more. I told you, you know, how commissary is and things of that nature. You got guys still trying to, um, you know, obtain lawyers, try to get home to their family. You got some guys in there, you know, they, they budget, you know, $7, uh, uh, $7 times, you know, 20, 20 days a month because weekends, you don't count. They may work weekends, you know, 25 days. You know, you can range around maybe, you know, 100 and some change, 100, close to 200 a month. Mm-hmm. You know, some guys try to send that money home to their families, you know, um, and with minimum wage, you know, you could do pretty much a little bit more you know, to try to save towards, as I said, you know, legal fees and um, other, save towards, you know, money for when you get released. You know, you try to put a budget together because, you know, that's important also. Marcus Lilly also told me about some of the types of work that people did in the facility where he was incarcerated and the types of pay they received for that work. Um, most of my jobs were kitchen workers because uh, a kitchen worker is somebody that works in a um, kitchen, obviously, uh, where you feed up, you either help feed up the uh, population, you work on a, uh, it's like a line, it's like a food line. Or you could be a sanitation um, worker in the kitchen and you clean up or you could be a cook. Most of the times I was working in the kitchen because the kitchen job is the easiest job to get. Um, 
I did. I was a shop worker kind of later on in my incarceration. I was working in a wood shop. Um, I think I had a laundryman job. I had a, a regular sanitation job, which is like uh, in the building or on the tear that you're uh, housed on. You kind of just clean up the tear before the guys are get let out their cells to come in their day room. You're responsible for cleaning the day room or you may be responsible for cleaning the shower. Uh, the shop is the highest paying job. Um, and I think the shop is like you get raises. Um, I forgot what the time frame was for the raise, but you have the option of kind of getting a higher pay in the shop. But the only thing about that is the shop is very hard to get into. You may be on a waiting list for two, three years getting in the shop. Because in most facilities, um, guys that are in the shop have been locked up for a long time. You have some that hasn't been, but uh, they're not going anywhere. So it's not like it's a... Uh, uh, and it's a, it's a bad word for it, but it's the only term I can think of. It's not like it's a revolving door in a sense where you have um, different workers coming through the shop or different people getting the opportunity to work in the shop. You oftentimes have the same people working in the shop. So I may be I may fill out a shop application and I may be waiting for two, three years. But you start off with a dollar, maybe a dollar and fifty. Um, a day and um, I think the most I've heard of somebody getting paid in the shop may be uh, close to like 10 or maybe even 15 a day if they was in there for years but the, the other jobs is definitely a dollar a day you do not have any no opportunity for growth or raises. It's just you're going to get a dollar a day for the duration of you working there. Public labor work directly cuts costs at facilities. The facility is not required to pay incarcerated people anywhere near the minimum wage. By hiring incarcerated people to complete jobs, including maintenance and food service positions, jails and prisons save huge amounts of money, completing essential tasks at dirt-cheap rates. As I mentioned earlier, the single largest area of expenditure in prisons is on staff. If the individuals who run prisons can afford to hire fewer staff members by hiring incarcerated people instead, they save a huge amount of money. The Prison Policy Initiative found that, when working in state-owned businesses, incarcerated people made on average between $0.33 cents and $1.41 per hour. There's absolutely a case to be made for prison labor, especially public labor. It's efficient, 
allows incarcerated people to earn money, and can help develop skills that they may use far beyond their period of incarceration. But the shockingly low wages paid to incarcerated people makes it extremely difficult for them to use their funds at any commissary, as well as making it extremely unlikely that an incarcerated person will save any money earned from their labor for use in the difficult transitional period immediately following their discharge from a facility. Moreover, these incredibly low wages actually devalue the work that the incarcerated person does. The jobs absolutely help them stay in the workforce, and that is essential to long-term ability to find employment after being incarcerated. But there's no reason that we should tell an incarcerated person that their work is only worth 33 cents an hour. While some aspects of public prison labor might be troubling, the use of prison labor by private companies demonstrates the intricacy of the prison industrial complex even more clearly. Let's delve into the history of that practice. In the 1930s, so-called convict leasing was illegal in every state in America. The convict leasing system of the 1800s developed after the abolition of slavery. Extremely harsh laws in the South targeted newly freed black Americans who were arrested on trumped-up charges of loitering or breaking curfew for doing virtually nothing. Once these Americans were incarcerated, plantation and company owners could enter into contracts with incarceration facilities, leasing out these overwhelmingly black, incarcerated people and paying virtually nothing for their labor. The convict leasing system essentially took the place of slave labor in the South. It was also horrifically violent with high death rates. The practice attracted national attention and was subsequently outlawed. A later system of labor exploitation through the use of chain gangs was used in America and was later abolished across the nation in the 50s. For a good period in the 20th century, prison labor was looked on with real skepticism. All instances of that labor had grown out of a history of slavery and labor exploitation in America, and for a while, it looked like something that didn't exist in the U.S. any longer. Today, private corporations can contract out prison labor through the, quote, Prison Industry Enhancement Certification Program, or PIECP. The labor standards put in place to protect incarcerated employees are there for good reason. The federal government wanted to avoid earlier systems of exploitation, while still allowing incarcerated people to build their resumes and have employment experience. This is a great idea. But, in execution, it's a little trickier. Through the PIECP, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, a bureau within the U.S. Department of Justice, can certify work programs in state and local prisons that operate in conjunction with private corporations. This program exempts those prisons and companies from federal restrictions on the interstate sale of prisoner-made goods. Incarcerated men and women work in mines, farms, and military manufacturing across the U.S. In the past, Victoria's Secret even entered into prison labor contracts, hiring incarcerated people to sew lingerie. According to the Bureau of Justice Assistance website, the PIECP program, quote, places inmates in realistic work environments, pays them prevailing wages, and gives them a chance to develop marketable skills that will increase their potential for rehabilitation and meaningful employment on release. Again, this is a great idea. Allowing incarcerated people to earn comparable amounts of money to their unincarcerated peers while also allowing them to remain in the workforce would seriously improve many of the struggles that formerly incarcerated people face once re-entering the workforce. But many of the claims on the Bureau of Justice Assistance's website are false. Companies that use prison labor rarely hire their former employees once they leave incarceration. 
And while these programs do provide valuable work experience, incarcerated workers earn far, far less than minimum wage. The PIECP requires that the company pays minimum wage for incarcerated labor, but incarcerated people working in the private sector earn, on average, between 14 and 63 cents an hour, even less than those who work in state-paid positions. How is this possible? The state extracts, quote, LFOs, also known as legal financial obligations, from incarcerated people's earnings. Taxes, restitution, room and board, and processing and incarceration costs are garnished from a person's pay, with the end result that they can lose up to 80% of their income. Moreover, since any labor a person does while incarcerated is not classified as employment under the U.S. tax code, private companies contracting prison labor do not have to pay unemployment taxes. So, when a person leaves the prison system, they can't file for unemployment. The resulting lack of funds makes reentering society even more difficult for formerly incarcerated people. However, these programs earn large amounts of money for the state. The funds that are garnished from an incarcerated person's wages are diverted to court costs and taxation, rather than going into programming at individual facilities or benefiting the individual who earned the money. Moreover, hiring incarcerated people saves companies money through tax exemptions, like the unemployment exemption. And because they pay minimum wage to the carceral facilities for labor, rather than offering competitive wages and benefits to attract labor on the open job market. These garnished wages are part of a phenomenon where the justice system rolls the cost of incarceration onto incarcerated people and their families, rather than owning the cost of mass incarceration at a governmental level. Activists describe the transfer of incarceration costs from the state to the individual as a pay-as-you-go or pay-to-stay criminal justice system. Courts use LFOs to reduce the amount that the state spends on the criminal justice system. In many facilities, incarcerated people are charged for their room and board, doctor's visits, in some cases even charged for the cost of taser usage during arrest. LFOs and cost rolling have been employed in the American justice system since at least the late 1980s, but became even more common in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. While these LFOs were initially used to fund rehabilitation programs in jails and prisons, the profits generated through the criminal justice system now feed into the state's regular revenue, with the end result that legislators view incarceration as another cost-cutting, cash-generating branch of government. In some cases, formerly incarcerated people have been sent to prison because they failed to pay back the high costs of their incarceration, essentially a criminalization of poverty. LFOs can destroy the credit scores of formerly incarcerated people for the rest of their lives, and in some cases, people serve more time in jail because they failed to pay court costs than they would have spent for the length of their original sentence. Law enforcement officers also use civil forfeiture laws to generate huge amounts of money. Civil forfeitures allow state and local police to seize the assets of incarcerated people, including their cash and property, without criminal charges and without warrants, nominally to pay for the cost of incarceration. Police have used these forfeiture laws to generate cash since the 70s and 80s. Today, civil forfeiture can occur under state and federal forfeiture laws. 
While in 2015, the Obama administration banned the use of federal law to justify civil forfeiture, in the summer of 2017, Attorney General Jeff Sessions reversed that ban. The profit potential of forfeiture laws can scarcely be overstated. From 2008 to 2017, police agencies seized $3 billion worth of property through the Justice Department's Civil Asset Forfeiture Program. These forfeitures not only represent a huge burden of cost for the people who lose their property, but, critics claim, they also undermine an individual's right to due process under the law, since the police can seize the property without so much as a warrant. Finally, state and local government use facilities themselves to generate profit from incarcerated people. Prison overcrowding remains a huge problem in many American states today. But in states that either overconstructed prison facilities or reduced their own prison population through criminal justice reform, state and local governments still profit from incarcerated people and incarceration facilities. States with open prison space bed broker or bed rent their empty prison space to hold incarcerated people from other states. As with private facilities, the state with the extra bed space is paid a flat fee by another state to hold an incarcerated person. These transactions are often negotiated by private third parties. While this practice was at its peak in the 1990s, out-of-state incarceration is still commonplace today. This practice not only removes incarcerated people from their communities, making it less likely that family and friends can support them during their time in prison, but also makes it less likely that individual states will reduce the size and scope of their prison systems. After all, if those facilities can generate a reliable profit stream for the state, no financial incentive exists for the state to close those prison facilities. These cost-rolling techniques are the result of years of cost-cutting. They developed in response to a massive criminal justice system that represents a huge financial cost for the state and remain a reliable way for the state to minimize those costs. However, they are deeply harmful for incarcerated people and represent a huge financial burden and stumbling block to the long-term success of formerly incarcerated people once they leave the criminal justice system. All of these examples illustrate the scope of the prison industrial complex. In response to decades of government cost-cutting and the rapid increase in incarceration rates, a system developed where private companies, the judicial system, the state and federal government, even local law enforcement all benefit financially from mass incarceration. Criminal justice reformers argue that this profit-oriented system is the wrong way to run detention facilities. The constant cost-cutting rhetoric, which only intensified during the recession, diverts funding from prison rehabilitation programming, devalues the work done by incarcerated people, and creates a system of corporations and lobbying groups that have a vested interest in continuing current systems of incarceration. Regardless of your moral position on incarceration and profit, though, the prison industrial complex poses a significant stumbling block to criminal justice reform. How can we transform a system when so many powerful groups benefit from that system remaining the same? Thanks for listening to the third episode of Reformed. In our fourth episode, we will discuss the struggles of reentry. We'll explore what factors help formerly incarcerated people stay out of the criminal justice system and how we can better support returning citizens. If you're interested in reading more about some of the subjects covered on today's show, check out Lauren Brooke Eisen's book, Inside Private Prisons, An American Dilemma in the Age of Mass Incarceration, Caught, The Prison State and the Lockdown of American Politics by Marie Gottschalk, and Cheap on Crime, Recession-Era Politics and the Transformation of American Punishment by Hadar Avriam. 
And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks to the band Broke for Free for the music used in the making of today's episode. Our theme song is their track XXV. You also heard samples from Solitude, Mayi, Washout, The Gold Lining, Note Drop, and Budding, all by Broke for Free. Check them out online.